Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome once again to the Tennis Podcast. Wimbledon relived day 10? Day 10. And a trip, <laughs> and a trip back in time to 2004 when Afghanistan held its first democratic elections. Hamid Karzai was elected. 90% of homes on the island of Grenada were destroyed by Hurricane Ivan. Facebook was launched to Harvard students, uh, if anyone's seen The Social Network, or if you haven't, watch it, because it's a great film, uh, that documents the genesis of Facebook. Janet Jackson had a wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl, or well, that was the story anyway. Ronald Reagan died. Weirdly enough, I was watching a documentary about Ronald Reagan at 8am this morning. Um, just... What was that? <laughs> just because. Um, really interesting. Any good? Any good? Yeah, very interesting. Uh, with it has a, has a lot of relevance for the world now. Um, Queen Mary II, the largest cruise ship ever, is christened by the Queen. Not a good time for cruise ships at the moment, um, but those were halcyon days. And uh, Pavarotti performed his last opera, Tosca, in New York. I, I've run out of births. Only extremely young people were being born in two thousand and four. Um, so yeah, N no more births, but, uh, Pavarotti's last, last opera. That's your lot for 2004. Uh, how long, how long ago is this? 16 years ago. Has Coco Goff been born yet? Well, she's turned 16, hasn't she? I guess she was born in 2004. She, she was. I did. I don't, I didn't make the list, David. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, you've exposed a flaw in the list. Coco Goff was born. I mean, other people were born too. It's just most of them aren't yet of note. March 13th, 2004, turns out. I, I also, um, I finished my A-levels and left school. That was a thing that happened in 2004. Did yours go a bit better than mine? Well, now you've mentioned it, David, they went very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no complaints. Um, Lovely. What were you doing in 2004? 
Who me? Uh, oh, well, I was, uh, yeah, trying to build a business and work in tennis uh, after having left the ATP, and I had done so, and I'd been working and commentating and all that sort of thing. And I was still, what, eight years shy of thinking, oh, Catherine, you know what we should do? We should start a tennis podcast. Had you met your wife yet? Had you been oh, set yeah. on the straight and narrow? I had, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'd been... Uh, I mean, fortunately, I'd somewhat got on the straight and narrow before meeting her. Otherwise, I would not have had a chance. Let's let's just be honest. Matt, what were you up to? What developmental stage were you at? I would love to say that I can remember tennis from 2004, but we're still just a little bit shy of my being able to remember. I was still at school. I'd actually just moved from Surbiton. For those people familiar with the ATP Challenger Tour, there's a grass court event in service and a great tennis club there. And they it's a really nice club. They have lots of grass courts, a bubble in the indoor season. And it's the perfect place, really, to grow up, to get interested in tennis. And yet we lived in literally a stone's throw away and I showed no interest whatsoever in tennis. And we moved and suddenly tennis was my thing. Um, so I can't really explain that, but... You were wrenched away from a tennis hub in your youth. Yeah, it was literally right there. Think how good that I'd be. be. Could that have can been. be the opening chapter in your autobiography, <laughs> Matt. <laughs> um, speaking of autobiographies, that is something that will be coming up, I rather suspect, a lot in today's pod because we're covering the 2004 Wimbledon Women's Final between 17-year-old Maria Sharapova and two-time defending Wimbledon champion Serena Williams, the opening chapter in what we thought was going to be a great rivalry at the time and did not turn out to be any kind of rivalry, but definitely did turn out to be something worthy of our attention today. Just just not a rivalry. Mm, yeah, I... I watched watching it back with you both just now does stir the memories of how it felt back then to be covering that match to be watching that match I would have been at Wimbledon I don't think I was commentating on it but I was doing interviews around it um and the Maria Sharapova I think I'd met the year before uh and interviewed on five live was when she was still really early stages I think she'd probably reached about the third round or something like that and I remember after one of her wins, she'd said, I want to be world number one. It was categoric. There was no, I mean, every player wants to be that, but there was a a sense within her that she was absolutely on a mission and nothing was going to get in her way. When she played Serena Williams in this match, I, I, I remember following the progress she had. She had a win over Daniela Hantikova in, in the earlier rounds of the tournament and there was just a feeling that she really was starting to make her way through the draw in a way that it was on and when she beat Serena it was such a shock the way the match unfolded to me at least that I thought she was gonna be the next big star to dominate I I genuinely thought this woman if she can beat Serena Williams in the way that she's just beaten her and it was a a very one-sided scoreline. I think there were competitive parts within the match, but I thought she was going to dominate the sport and be a multiple Wimbledon champion. And she's actually achieved some great things in, in the sport. And I, th- I think her, her French Open titles are the biggest of the achievements, to, to my mind. But she didn't do what I thought she would do, given that performance. 
She was, as I say, 17, 17 years of age, but but not a total bolt from the blue in that tournament. I mean, yes, yeah, she she wasn't an expected champion by any means, but she was, what, a 13th seed going in, Matt? Yeah, 13th seed. She'd just reached her first Grand Slam quarterfinal at the French Open. And the big and the big talk was this kind of Russian Russian revolution in the game. That was the first uh, tournament won by a Russian first Grand Slam tournament won by a Russian woman with Miskina beating Dementieva in that horrible no two thousand and four no no French Open there, final. Um, and <laughs> Move on quickly, just, just go back to our worst Grand yeah, Slam finals ever. <laughs> Uh, that is uh, front and centre of that one. Um, and then Sharapova went to Birmingham and won on the grass before Wimbledon. But actually something that I had forgotten is that Serena and Sharapova actually played before this Wimbledon final. They played in Miami earlier earlier that year. So 2004 Miami was the first match of both the Federer-Nadal rivalry and the Serena-Sharapova Unrivalry. Let's go with let's go with Christopher Clary's word because I can't think of a better description for it. Um, so it's just quite interesting that those two that those two um, sort of greats both met there. Um, and the interesting thing is that Serena won really quite comfortably. It was her first tournament back since Wimbledon the previous year. Serena had had a knee injury at the end of the two thousand and three season. She played Sharapova, beat her six four six three, fairly comfortable. And I looked up the transcript of the press conference and there's no questions to Serena at all about, oh, she pushed you there, Sharapova. What do you think of her? Are you going to have a rivalry with her? No sense of it at all. It's all about how Serena's feeling. So I think as much as Sharapova did have a little bit of form going into Wimbledon, it's it's also interesting to note that just three or four months prior to Wimbledon, nobody was talking about her as any kind of threat to Serena yet. Also in terms of Serena and of, and of course Venus as well, sadly, it, it was about eight months prior to this Wimbledon that their sister had passed away in that tragic drive-by shooting in, in Los Angeles. And we, we know how much that affected both of them and I'm sure continues to affect both of them. What an absolutely horrifying thing to, to have to go through. Um, and also on a slightly different note in terms of what Serena was experiencing this Wimbledon, Venus, um, who was the third seed. Serena was the top seed. Miskina was the second seed at the tournament and Venus the, the third seed. She had lost herself in in a very memorable match that Wimbledon for all the wrong reasons in the second round to Carolina Sprem um, in in a match which is known for the umpire, Ted Watts, British umpire, calling the score wrong in the first set tie-break. He was later removed from the roster at Wimbledon and I might be wrong, but I've certainly not heard of him since. It was it was a terrible blunder. He got the score wrong in the tie-break. Carolina Sprem won that tie-break and that match. She's incidentally now the wife of Marcos Bagdatis. Um, and Venus, having lost so early, didn't stick around um, to to watch and, and support Serena as she so often has now. I'm, I'm sure there was no bad feeling about that at all, but it it's pretty documented that that was something that 
that affected Serena, her sister not being around when she'd been so used to her being around. And I'm sure having been through that awful experience of losing their sister less than a year before, the sort of the camaraderie between the two of them must have been at its most significant and most important in some ways at that point in their lives. And I think also just in terms of not playing Venus in the final, Serena's last six Grand Slam finals had all been against Venus. This was the first time she'd played someone other than her sister since her very first Grand Slam final, which was against Hingis. Um, And I think there must have been a sense of just unfamiliarity and just not feeling as comfortable as she normally felt in a Grand Slam final against Venus. I don't, I, I don't buy into any of that narrative that those matches were in any way fixed at all. And there was a, there was an awkwardness about those matches as a matchup, but there was also a sense that Serena could be comfortable playing Venus because she knew her game so well and they knew each other's game so well. And if she lost, she knew she was at least losing to Venus. So to suddenly have someone like Sharapova, more of an unknown quantity coming up against her in a final, I can under, I can understand why Serena maybe wasn't quite as sharp or as ready for this Grand Slam final as, as she was other ones. We've just rewatched uh, extended highlights of the match this morning um and david you you commented during that that you think it's the the first time you've seen any of it since you watched it live at the time how did what you saw this morning match up to to your memory of it i suppose i've been looking at more for the tennis than the storyline as i was back then there was a shock factor to the way because bear in mind serena williams had won She'd held all four Grand Slam titles just a year or so earlier and was the absolute dominant force in the game in the eyes of us all, really. Even if she wasn't winning all the slams at that particular point, the feeling was you get her to a final, she wins. And this young player, well, it'll be just interesting to see how she copes. And because because of the one-sided nature of the scoreline, and I think the celebration afterward, afterwards from Sharapova, we've just watched it back. She's absolutely delirious. She's uh, she's very giggly. You can see her youth in that moment. And, and it, it is lovely, actually, just how overwhelmed she is by it all. Um, and then there's that moment where she's she tries to call her mother on the mobile phone and doesn't get through, and it gives her a, a, a the the word is that it ended up resulting in a in a mobile phone uh, sponsorship deal that she managed to get out of it. Um, but that my feeling at the time was that we were witnessing a real rival to Serena for the next ten years in in a way that wasn't going to result in Serena Williams twenty Sharapova two, which is what their rivalry ended up as. So watching it back now, I think Sharapova's serve looks better to me. This was pre all the shoulder problems and surgery that she had. Uh but I think the biggest difference is the way that Serena Williams approaches matches with her these days and what we've become used to, which is just taking the initiative from ball one, serving into the corners, putting Sharp over on the back foot, stretching her out wide. And what we saw in this match is that the ball was coming to Sharp over in a way that she could just take the initiative. It was a three-quarter pace balls, three-quarter length a lot of the time, not going out wide. And you put those balls to Sharapova and she will knock you around. It's just that these days, 
and over the last 10 15 years it seemed like she would she would still try to play aggressive tennis off balls that were just not there to be aggressive off because Serena wouldn't wouldn't give her any chances there was a very alluring fearlessness about Sharapova that day wasn't there just seeing so i mean of of course youth youth helps but somebody with that steely look in their eye that is determined to to seize the occasion and the moment and not be cowed by it. Yeah, interesting you've used the word fearless because I found a, a quote from our favourite source of quotes, Martina Hingis at the time, who um, who said she reminds oh. me of myself for how, <laughs> for how fearless she is. <laughs> and, you know, they were... That is sensational. <laughs> and actually they would both end up as uh, five-time Grand Slam champions. I think they both have very very different approaches to playing tennis, but similar sort of outcome in terms of career output in the end. Yeah, I just, I, I thought that was great. <laughs> it's funny, as as their, um, as their unrivalry and sort of later feud, I suppose, developed, and we'll, we'll talk about that more a bit, bit later, digging out quotes from the both of them, the sort of verbal slingshots each way, all of them could be Martina Hingis quotes. <laughs> She was a trailblazer. Yeah, an absolute trailblazer for mudslinging. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Shall we hear from Mary Carrillo, who also remembers that final in great detail? She was there covering it, of course, and, and, and what went on to unfold between the two of them over the course of the next 15 years. Um, Yeah, here are Mary's recollections of that final in 2004. That really was an impressive performance. I think I, I almost feel like saying that Serena wasn't prepared for Sharapova to be ready for that match, for that win. And Serena obviously was dug in. I think, I think it surprised everybody that every, you know, Sharapova looked at the court and saw winners and then hit them. That was a big surprise. And, and I guess looking back now with the, the benefit of hindsight, it's more surprising that, the rivalry ended that year, basically. <laughs> Sharapova won one more time against Serena. And then, again, Serena relished playing Sharapova. She just she wanted that match. And after a time, surely Sharapova didn't feel the same way. How much about the way that unrivalry unfolded was about that, that 0-4 Wimbledon final? Though? I oh, mean- I think... Oh, I think Serena held on to it. She probably holds on to it still. Um, I absolutely believe that. I think, uh, and, and keep in mind, Maria became a millionaire that day, a multimillionaire. And she became, you know, she became the wealthiest female athlete of all time in the coming years. And she became a brand. She's the first person, first tennis player that I ever heard that word attached to. And it still bothers me, that word, but but we carry on because everyone's got brands now. <laughs> did, um, um, <laughs> did Serena take Sharapova lightly that day? That's what I'm wondering. I, I, I don't know that she, I can't imagine that she took her lightly, but I think my guess, uh, and I'm not sure Serena would ever agree with this or confess to it if it's true, but I just don't think she thought this 17-year-old Russian kid who had never won a major was ready to win it there that day against her. That would sort of be my guess. You know, sometimes when someone's playing that well 
in a match, you figure, ah, well, they'll cool down. They'll, they'll cool off and I'll come, come good. And that just never happened in that match. I mean, that was an unblinking Sharapova, you know, going for big shots and they were all landing that day. You know, sometimes you figure, all right, when it gets tight, you know, you know, this kid's going to start shaking. And she never did. Is that the fearlessness of youth? I think it was, but also, look, Sharon Povo worked hard. I mean, I don't, I, I, I think it, some of it is a function of age, but Sharon Povo carried herself always. I mean, I was watching that kid from the time she was very young at Boletari's. Um, She had a certain carriage to her. She had, uh, there was a, even then when the kid hadn't done anything yet, there was an air of inevitability around Maria Sharapova. Um, she, and it's not like she was to the manor born or anything like that. I mean, she and her dad were struggling to make ends meet as she was training to be a champion. But that kid, and I don't know if you've read Sharapova's book, the first half of her book, I find absolutely fascinating because she talks about what the struggle was like. And I didn't like the second half as much. I didn't believe the second half as much, but boy, oh boy, when she talks about what the, the how high risk, I mean, that was a high wire act, the two of them moving over here and, and doing that. And I think she, she knew she had to work as hard as she did. I think when she played that Wimbledon final against Serena, she felt like she'd earned the right to be there. So is that, is that part of youth too? Or is that just her knowing I belong? I, I belong. I'm going to kick you off of your lawn. The insights you get from her autobiography are fascinating. And I, I do agree with, with Mary that, that, it, that, that sort of will put, in terms of my reaction to it, very much split into part one and part two. That high wire act, as Mary describes, the, the story of her, her youth and her parents' decision to, to move her to, to, to Florida at such a young age. All of that is fascinating. And it's also defining for Maria Sharapova. It defined her in her own mind as somebody that had to triumph over adversity. It defined her as an underdog and in, and in some respects a victim. And I think she carried that through into other aspects of her life and her career and her rivalry with Serena in ways that were perhaps not appropriate. I think in her own mind, certainly her autobiography in the second half of it, and she deals a lot with with her relationship with Serena, she characterizes herself as sort of a victim in that in that relationship, somebody that that had to triumph over adversity. And it's, there's a sort of failure to acknowledge the definite disadvantages that, that Serena Williams had relative to relative to her, you know, it wasn't until 2016 that Serena Williams overtook Sharapova, Sharapova's 11-year reign as the highest paid female athlete in the world. It took a doping ban for Serena Williams to become a higher earner than Maria Sharapova. And I don't, I don't begrudge Maria Sharapova the endorsement deal she had. It's, it's not, it wasn't up to her what people were prepared to pay her um, and what they were prepared to pay her relative to Serena, but there is a real failure to acknowledge those privileges and the benefits that she enjoyed as a result of of her advantages. 
um because i think she perceived herself not as somebody in a in a position of, of advantage because of what she experienced in her youth well i think that was very well said um a very interesting experience of the book i haven't read the book i've read ex excerpts from it extracts but yeah in terms of how my perception of her in her early career versus how it became that characterizes my feelings my reaction to her as a player over the years and a person i don't, I don't know maria sharapova i've interviewed her a couple of times very briefly but in the early years i i did find her a refreshing addition to the circuit i i thought she was going to go on and and become a great and i think she did exceptionally well overall but i do feel like the reaction of the markets and the business to her was wasn't in line with what she was doing on the court it, it was far outstripped it i mean as you say you take what you can get as a as a as an athlete in terms of these deals but i found i didn't find her certainly in the as the years went on particularly likable i felt her very detached pretty condescending to be honest with us in the media room um and look, that's that's her choice, and I and I, I don't know what it's like to be on her side of the desk, but I found her not that easy to 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 relate to because of the way she carried herself. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot of stories, weren't there, between the two of them? And uh, and it, I mean, it got pretty unpleasant, really, at times. I think the way Sharapova set herself up against Serena, as you've described there, Catherine. I first became aware of that actually quite recently with um, seeing the reaction of Serena fans on social media to their match in New York last year and Sharapova's retirement, where that's the reason that they don't like Sharapova, the Serena fans. The way Sharapova presented herself as kind of other compared to Serena and didn't acknowledge Serena's struggle. And I think... I mean, there's, I mean, the Serena fans can mobilise very quickly on social media, but there was, there's a real resentment and, anim, and animosity there. And, you know, they would, when, when Sharapova retired, they were saying, what am I going to miss? And suddenly it was, you know, it was a montage of just Serena winning match points against Sharapova. They, they will hammer home the score of that rivalry 22 to make their point and i think it's a perfectly valid point this idea that serena's also had to overcome a lot and that needs to be recognized and she's a far better player than sharapova and deserves to have also earned more from it and i would say she's probably a far better player against sharapova than against anybody else because all of this fueled her desire to 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 play even better to to win more i think just on, on a micro level against sharapova specifically and there were i mean it, as i said it got pretty unpleasant with uh, i believe there was there was a point where grigor dimitrov was romantically linked with serena williams then he went out with sharapova and they were commenting on on one another's uh relationships and there was there were some words from Sharapova about Patrick Moratoglu which which would you like to hear these words yeah 
Do you want to hear the mudslinging? Uh, so sure. this is all circa 2013. She's got it. She's got the mudslinging, <laughs> everybody. She has. <laughs> so this is all circa 2013. Um, and uh, I guess it starts, well, you know, not starts, but this episode starts um, in an interview Serena did uh, in Rolling Stone magazine. And you know, there's quite a few quotes, but I think the punchiest one is in reference to Sharapova. She begins every interview with, I'm so happy. I'm so lucky. It's so boring, says Serena. Quote, she's still not going to be invited to the cool parties. And hey, if she wants to be with the guy with the black heart, go for it. Now, Grigor Dimitrov is not named there, but everyone's understanding is that her reference uh, there is to Grigor Dimitrov. Sharapova's response to this when it was put to her was to say, if she wants to talk about something personal, maybe she should talk about her relationship with her boyfriend that was married and is getting a divorce and has kids. Talk about other things, but not draw attention to other things. She has so much in her life, many positives, and I think that's what she should talk about. Um, and that most people take as a reference to her new relationship <laughs> with with Patrick Moratoglu, um, who, of course, is is still her coach um, and no longer her rumoured lover. Um, yeah, so that was that was when it started to get really, really personal, and that was when that was when Serena kind of let loose all the Hingis esque stuff about how one sided the the rivalry was she would talk about how much she loved playing Sharapova there's a quote from her in 2015 saying I love playing her I think it's fun I just have the time of my life <laughs> um, which you know why wouldn't you at that point it's it's a guaranteed win isn't it that's certainly how it is in in her mind um, she's just completely got her number and it's obviously a win that gives her as much satisfaction, if not more than any other. So, I mean, yeah, but you could totally hear those words coming out of Martina Hingis's mouth, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to show a non-tennis fan what made Serena so great, you would just roll roll the tapes of Serena playing Sharapova because those were the matches where she found her best tennis when she needed it when she was more powerful, when she was more intelligent to hone in on an opponent's weakness, all the best aspects of her game, her athleticism, were always most dialed in when she played Sharapova. And I think I think it is born in this Wimbledon 2004 final. There's a quote Serena gives afterwards where she says, I don't like to lose to the same person too many times. You look at Venus and I, when we lose to someone, we go home and we try to ameliorate things. So there was a, there's a recognition immediately after that final that she wants to put things right. And she went on to lose to her in the WTA Championships at the end of that year and then beat her for the second time to level the rivalry in the 2005 Australian Open, saving a lot of match points. And then from there, so many of the matches were straight sets. I mean, dominant performances from Serena. And I also think Serena really had a problem with the way Sharapova talked about her in the book. I think Serena's mentioned over a hundred times in the book and Sharapova references this 2004 Wimbledon final saying that when I, what I heard when I came into the locker room was Serena Williams bawling, guttural sobs. I got out as quickly as I could, but she knew I was there. 
and um, people talk about Serena's strength, her serve, her confidence, and how her game matches up against mine. And there's truth to all that. But the answer to why she's had my number is that in the locker room where I was changing and she was balling, I think Serena hated me for being the skinny kid who beat her against all odds at Wimbledon. You know, this is this is quite evocative. Mm. language and I think you know Serena would call that pure hearsay and really did have a problem with it and you know they didn't meet too many times after these quotes came out but clearly that had been under the surface for a long long time and sort of fueling Serena's motivation in in all of their matches and even if I mean let's let's accept as truth you know Serena Williams crying in in the locker room after losing that final which is not an unusual thing for a for a defeated player to be devastated by a loss. She, she's layering that moment with the interpretation that it was personal and to do with her being what she perceived as the antithesis of Serena. There's something that makes me really uncomfortable about the use of of skinny kid there because she's she's hinting at a contrast between her and Serena, which which really makes me uncomfortable, um, as does her her reference in the book. I mean, there's, there's a few little turns of phrase like this. You know, I, I think everybody's seen her, the, the quote about Serena having thick arms and thick legs and being intimidating and strong. But I think what's actually even more telling than that is the comment she makes after that about Serena, which is, and tall, really tall. Now, Maria Sharapova is between three and four inches taller than Serena Williams. So, so for Maria Sharapova to be commenting on her height like that, I find extremely bizarre. And again, I think hints at her perception of herself as this sort of underdogs, slight slight in every way in, in contrast to, to Serena Williams, I suppose. And, and, this perception of herself as the underdog, as somebody that triumphed over over adversity in in the face of this angry aggressor, and I think there are unconsciously a lot of racist tropes going on there, um, which you know we've referenced that we've probably all been guilty of to a certain extent over the years, but but it makes me uncomfortable reading it now, and I can absolutely understand why. That was fuel to to the fire for Serena Williams. Well, when you said the the line about three or four inches taller, I thought you assume I, I was assuming you meant Serena was saying that because um, I mean, you know she's so tall, uh, Sharapova. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very it it's very very insightful that line I find about uh, her perception of herself relative to to Serena, and you know I I'm not. I, I'm not diminishing her her struggle that she went through in the early stages of of her career, um, but you can you can embrace your own struggle and, and be defined by it as much as you like, whilst also acknowledging the struggle of of others. And I think that's the problem. She's completely failed to acknowledge her her privilege relative to to Serena's, even if she's had her own disadvantages along the way, and that is. That is problematic for me, um, but for for two players with a total lack of tennis rivalry over the years, they certainly give us an awful lot to talk about, don't they? 
Um, and and it's clear, you know, Matt Matt mentioned that the the number of mentions of Serena in the Sharapova book. It's clear. I mean, she even says it. She says. She says her own career has been defined by Serena. She says, Serena Williams has marked the heights and the limits of my career. Our stories are intertwined. And yeah, I think that's true. But would Serena say the same? I, th- I think she'd go out of her way not to. Uh, and she'd probably, I would imagine she would underplay the impact of of. Sharapova, I think she would regard it as of having had no impact at all on her, really. Um, whereas I think it did. I think that two thousand and four match did help energize her. I think you know if if we've seen anything from the Michael Jordan documentary, he was always finding causes to to keep the motivation fires burning, and uh, and I think that this was definitely one. I don't think consciously. I think I think Sharapova just wound her up and she, <laughs> she wanted to beat her. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. I think we're aware while we discuss Sharapova as we have for one reason or another quite a lot over the last few months because we've obviously had her had her retirement and and talked about her a lot at the French Open and, and now this. We're aware that that we don't we don't know her that well. We've not had the opportunity to get to know her and that's totally her prerogative how she's wanted to deal with the the media over the years. But it is it's a bit of a, a hindrance in giving, you know, a fully balanced picture of her. So um David has spoken to Michael Joyce, a man that worked with Maria Sharapova for for a good portion of her careers for about seven years, um, to get his perspective on 
on Maria and and actually starts off by talking about the fact that he could have worked with her for longer than that, even starting from before that Wimbledon final. I actually had a choice. Uh, they were trying to get me to work with her and and also Alexandra Stevenson. Remember um, Alexandra? Yeah, very well. <laughs> I, yeah. I actually chose I actually chose Alexandra over her. So that shows you how much I know. Because <laughs> she, I, I was literally like I'd play a couple hours with Maria and then a couple hours with Alexandra, and I was like thinking I wasn't. I was like I don't know how long I'm going to do this coaching for, and I was like I think Alexandra could do better like short term and. And then literally like a year later, Maria wins Wimbledon. So showed you how much I knew about tennis. <laughs> yeah. So I was in close contact with her. I just, uh, I just at the time felt like Alexander was a better choice for me. Like at that time, I mean, Maria was only 16 and she turned 17 in April. So it was only a couple, couple months before Wimbledon. Mm. So what are your memories of her before she won Wimbledon? The first time I met her when she was like nine, her coming on the court, I never hit with somebody like that young. And I was kind of hitting like easy with her. And then her dad, Yuri, didn't speak English that much, maybe a little bit. But I remember him saying to me, it's OK, you can hit it hard at her. You can hit it hard, you know. <laughs> and so I knew her at that age. And then I always kind of saw her every year, more or less. So I remember her at 16, when I spent a lot of time with her, I remember she grew like a lot when she was like four, uh, like 15, 14 or 15. So she was really tall. And I remember like pretty weak, like, you know, she hit the ball really well, but she didn't move that great. And she was a kind of a uh, little uncoordinated, you know, she hit really good, like straight on boom, boom, boom. But like the, the other parts of her game were kind of missing, you know, I could, uh, but she always would try like I, I could be up five one and she would be like never like get down on herself. I mean, she'd get a little disappointed if she was losing whatever. But she was like always trying, you know, trying so hard, whether I won one and one or two and two. It was like every game she was fighting for, you know, and, and that always stuck out to me at that when she was that age. I was like, this girl's really like competitive. And it was good, too. Like I could tell her things, you know, uh, from being a player myself, I tell her a little bit in between games or something. I'd say, oh, I think you, you know, you should come to the net more on this or that or whatever. And she was always like really willing to, um, she was really willing to listen. And and um, everybody always had this misconception that like Yuri was there every second, you know. But it was actually. When she used to, when we used to have a lot of our practices and stuff, he used to go skiing like up in Mammoth, and I wouldn't see him for three, four days. And he used to always say to me, "Hey, you know, when you hit with Maria, just you know, if you if you want to tell her something, just tell her. You know, she'll she'll listen. She'll listen." And so I always had like the freedom to feel like I could be honest with her, tell her things, and I really respected how she really listened, and she always was looking to get better. And she was had a good personality. She was young, you know. She was sixteen, so she was a young girl. But like, she was very um, uh, eager and and worked hard and and always tried, always tried so hard. So, how much of a shock, if at all, was it to you, Michael, when basically a year later she won Wimbledon? It, yeah, it was a shock. I mean, that that was part of the reason, actually, like I kind of chose to go with Alexandra because I knew Maria was good. Like, there was no doubt she was going to be really good. But it, I figured it would take a couple years, at least, especially because she was still so um, 
kind of weak, you know, she was tall, but she was very thin and, and very, um, almost inexperienced in a way, you know, when you look at it, I almost felt like she was inexperienced in a way. And so I remember her saying, and she told me this after a long time, when she got to the quarterfinals of the French, she was like, um, she was like in heaven, you know, she never in a million years, especially clay. She didn't like playing on clay that much back then. And she got to the quarterfinals of the French. And I remember her telling me, you know, when I started working with her full time, she told me that that was like huge for her because she was just like never really believed she could go that far, you know? And I think that gave her a lot of confidence going into Birmingham, which she won and then ultimately Wimbledon. And so it, I, it was, I think it was kind of surreal for everybody in a way like uh, um you know obviously she talked a lot about wimbledon over the the years and and um i was with her the following year when she was defending her title and and i think she lost to venus in the semis i think but but it was like i think those whole that whole month almost of being in birmingham straight to wimbledon that's why we played birmingham for many years after that because she wanted to try to you know kind of mimic what she had done those that month and you know it was, it was a pretty much a shock to everybody and i know she suffered after that's part of the reason i started to work with her because afterwards her her life changed like dramatically and then in the summer right after she won wimbledon she actually really struggled um you know and that summer i think she lost a, a bunch of matches in a row and then u.s open she lost in the third two, second or third round to mary pierce and then right after the u.s open is when i was um i know she she i'll tell you one thing for sure she loved her coach uh mauricio had dad so she was you know obviously she was working with robert some she was connected to Terry, and then yuri obviously was a huge influence and then you had mauricio Haddad, who i don't think when i look back i don't think he got enough credit for what he was doing you know he did a tremendous job with her that that whole year um and um and i remember right after i think there was a lot of a lot of egos kind of <laughs> kind of it was kind of a shock to everybody and i think everybody kind of wanted to take credit for uh, you know her winning or being her coach and her winning and, and i think mauricio kind of felt a little bit like um you know he didn't really get no not a lot of people didn't really acknowledge him that much and then i kind of jumped in right after us open when it was kind of like this big um a uh, group of you know four or five men kind of trying to take a lot of credit for her win- winning you know <laughs> and it was like i think it put a lot of pressure on her i think all of a sudden she was in the limelight and so when i started with her she was kind of like she, she had gone through a tough couple months because her life had changed so much because of the attention you mean yeah i think it was just everything i think you know all of a sudden when she won she became you know obviously she became a huge star she overnight i mean she became a huge star all of a sudden she had a good team around her um all of a sudden everybody kind of wanted to jump up to the forefront you know i know robert was you know looking for a lot of credit Terry, mauricio who was doing like the day in and day out work with her um he was kind of working under Terry. And I and then I think there was a lot of turmoil a little bit. And then obviously Yuri, who had been with her forever, and her dad, Yuri, you know, obviously wanted to be like her coach too. And so it was like, I think it was a great time for her, obviously, because her life changed. But it was also a little bit tough for her too, you know, changing, obviously. And, and I remember when I started working with her 
more full time, like after the U.S. Open, we kind of just saw everybody kind of just got back to the basics a little bit, you know, and, and then she went on to uh, win tournament in Japan. And then obviously, like things calmed down and she ended up finishing the year really, really well. So it was, um, you know, then she, then, then she got used to it. But I think it was a huge change for everybody. And I remember watching from a distance, obviously, and I, you know, seeing her win, I would have never guessed that she would win a Grand Slam that soon. Yeah, I mean, terms of her game at that time, I mean, you would have come on as well, I imagine, seeing what you saw, you knew something of her already. She wins Wimbledon, and you have got to then, I guess, take the next steps with her. Right. What, what did you make of her game when she's winning Wimbledon? I mean, she's thrashed Serena Williams in the final, and then right. you are, I guess, as you say, it's calming down, and you're you're starting to lay some further foundations. What what did you find? What did you see in her game at that point that needed yeah. work? Well, I, I think it was, uh, it, it was also, well, people don't, you know, grass obviously over the years, the grass has changed a lot at Wimbledon. It, you know, it's a lot um, slower now. It you know, plays a little more. I mean, back when she won, it was playing really fast. And you know, obviously she hit the ball amazing and hit like a ton. And so I think physically also it, didn't take as much out of you as as obviously some of the other grand slams so i i feel like she won the tournament she was um you know obviously she was the best player um but i think it also she wasn't quite as good as she like people thought she was you know it's kind of like at that time she wasn't complete yet you know and i think it took a couple years for her i think when she won the u.s open a couple years later was when she and then obviously the Australian Open, but I think winning the U.S. Open a couple of years later, it was it was kind of like a good two years of hard work of her um, completing her game, getting stronger, physically stronger was super important because um, you know she used to get very tired uh, at that age and, and had little injuries and, and little th- to get through a two week Grand Slam, it takes a lot out of you physically, mentally, and and so I think that was part of the reason like she didn't. She she came pretty close, I'll tell you, to winning like Australian Open. I think right after she won the championship, she had match points against Serena in Australia. Um, but she was playing good. But I, I feel like I helped her a lot with um, her strategy. I helped her uh, moving forward better, taking balls out of the air, uh, dealing with different types of players that she didn't like. She didn't at the time. She didn't like playing these junk ballers and slicers you know these uh, even players like Mesquina that would get a lot of balls back yeah I think Wimbledon kind of everything kind of just worked out and um, I mean she'd be the first one to admit I mean she she said she told me later on I mean she had a couple really tough matches uh, I think with Sugiyama and then um, then she was getting killed by Lindsay and you know she told me a story that was really interesting when she was playing Lindsay in the semifinals she was getting killed I think she was down a set and maybe even a break or something in the second. And she said that they had a brain delay and she, because she used to say like that little waiting area down below, like where they have the little training rooms and stuff. She said she remembers sitting in that room and she was like making flights, like thinking that she was going to lose, you know, (laughs) I think she lost six one. She said she was making flights and she was pretty happy about getting to the semifinals. You know, she wasn't going to give up of course, but she, kind of in a way and she said Mauricio told her like whatever you do I don't care what happens when you go back on the court 
I want you in the ad court, just take away the tea serve, just take it away, just take it away, because she keeps killing you on the serve. And she said she went out there and she hit a couple good returns and she got back in the match and and somehow she won it, you know, and 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 then all of a sudden she found herself in the finals. And then before the finals, she was sick. I don't know. You probably might have heard that over the years. She actually woke up with a really bad sore throat and her dad was like really worried that she was sick and, and and all of a sudden she went out there and she played great and Serena I think was kind of nervous and and then she you know won the final so it was like everything kind of worked out those two weeks it was it was meant to be obviously she had gained confidence but I feel like when I started with her obviously she was already a great player and Grand Slam champion but she had I think her game grew the next three or four years a lot uh, physically and and just becoming more of a complete player. And obviously she matured. She got a little bit older and got used to having a limelight on her. And and I was really proud of the work we did and how she continued to improve because a, a lot of players could, you know, she became an instant, you know, making tons of money. A lot of players could have sat back and, and been like, oh, okay, I made it, you know, but she constantly wanted to get better and and improve and and that was, uh, for me, that was a joy to be around. Yeah. she. I was just looking. She won two out of her first three matches against Serena, including one that you would have been yeah. coaching her at the WTA finals. Right, right, yeah. And she had a couple really close matches after. Like, like at the finals, I'll tell you, she got a little bit lucky in the finals. Uh, she'd be the <laughs> because Serena, like, pulled her stomach muscle or something. And so she was that that finals was pretty amazing to be honest because she had beaten like three girls in that finals that she really struggled against before and um i think also that's kind of when i kind of in a way like gained their trust you know you know as a coach because i remember her going into that final was only my third or fourth tournament with her and I remember Yuri, her dad, we'd, we'd go at night and watch some of the other players. And I speci- I remember exactly who she played. And I remember every girl that she played in that tournament she had trouble with, like, in the past. And so I was able to help her with some strategies and some stuff to really uh, turn some of those matches around. And then, obviously, I think she beat Kuznetsova pretty easy. She beat Muskina, which she always struggled against Muskina. I think she had lost to her four or five times before that. And, um, and then, uh, Kuznetsova, I remember Yuri saying, I think Kuznetsova won the U S open that year. And I remember Yuri saying, Oh, Kuznetsova is so strong. She's so much stronger than Maria. Like, how's Maria gonna, how are we going to win this match? And, and, you know, so there was some things that I had seen that, uh, you know, I felt like her game could, um, match up well and some strategy stuff. And, and um, then obviously in the finals, she was, I think that she was in the third set and Serena, I think was up like three or four zero, and kind of like pulled her stomach muscle and, and started to serve um, kind of half speed. And then Maria won the last six games. So, you know, obviously Maria put herself in position to, to win that, but I think we got a little bit lucky in the final. And then in Australia, she had, uh, Maria got very unlucky because she had three or four match points against Serena and Serena hit like a shank that went 20 feet up in the air and landed right on the baseline. And I think Maria should have won that match. So she was very competitive. 
Yeah, that was. If you ever get a chance to watch that match, I actually they played it recently on somewhere, and I was I, the tennis was amazing. Like both of them were moving like incredible, and I felt like it was an unbelievable match. What What happened in that rivalry in your mind, Michael? That she went yeah. from winning two of the first three to basically never beating her again. Yeah, I know. I I I think there was also it, it was interesting because. Actually, when I was with Maria, she didn't really play Serena all that often. Um, so I have a big um, opinion of why that went south. I, I, she, <laughs> I actually remember, I remember, so she played her in Australia there, and then they didn't play for a long time after that because I think Serena had some of her health problems. And um, yeah, and then I'll tell you, they played in the finals of Australian Open, and I, I, I have never been so sure about, a match in my life and been so wrong. Like I usually had a pretty good idea how Maria was going to do or play. And I remember she played Serena in the finals and Maria was playing amazing. She beat Kleisters in the semis easy. Maria was playing the whole tournament amazing. And Serena was like overweight. She was struggling. She she was down against Pierre. I think Pierre served for the match twice. She, every match Serena struggled. And, um, I remember them playing in the finals and I honestly thought Maria was going to kill her and the match starts and Serena plays lights out. She literally played aced her right and left hit every, and and she killed Maria that match. It was like two and one or something. And I'd never seen a woman play like Serena played that match. And, um, and then I remember, I think they played in, um, I think they played in Charleston was the last time I had seen the two of them play uh, with me being Maria's coach. And, and it was a tough three-setter. And uh, Serena won, but it was a really good match, tough three-setter. And then I, I really feel that over the next few years, I feel like Maria uh, started to play very predictable. Um, you know, I don't, I, I think she started, uh, once she hurt her shoulder, and, you know, we obviously we came back from the shoulder surgery and stuff. But then Maria became very predictable on her serve, uh, partly because she had to because you know, so Serena, Serena was sitting on her serve all the time. Um, I think Maria lost a little bit of her reaction, a lot uh, speed. Um, I feel like that's why uh, the rest of her career, like she, I think she was able to win the French open because the, it actually, she became almost better on clay because the conditions slowed down. So it gave her more time, but I feel like Maria lost, uh, once she came back from the injuries and stuff, I feel like she lost a couple steps of foot speed, which, um, really hurt her against Serena. And then obviously, like I said, I think Maria played very predictable, which kind of set up well for Serena. And then I think it also became after she took some some really bad losses, I think it became mental, too. Uh, obviously, you know, not not that Maria would have. Um, but I mean, a lot of those scores in the middle where she just got blown out. I mean, Serena would always raise her game to like the, her highest level. And Maria, I feel like was I feel like Maria probably felt like Serena was the one player that she didn't feel like she could um, match, you know, physically, um, power-wise. All the stuff that Maria could do against everybody else didn't, <laughs> wasn't working against Serena. So I think it became very mental too. The the feeling was certainly it was suggested that it might have been a little bit personal from Serena's side as well in terms of her raising yeah, a game sure. because it was Maria. 
Sure. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's no doubt. But, you know, when but I I think of I mean, I think there's a lot of different speculations and different. I know Maria wrote that book and there's I think there's a lot of different speculations on why it was personal. But I mean, when you look at from Serena, I don't think it all stems from that Wimbledon match, to be honest. I mean, I think I think Maria probably brought the best out of Serena. I think Serena knew uh, Maria was the one player who was um, for many years was uh, making more money than her, getting almost more attention than her. <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, I mean, it, it was basically for many years, Maria was getting all this attention and, and almost outshining Serena, especially when Serena was um, hurt and sick. And I think uh, as a competitor, um, you need that extra drive you know it's like uh, i just watched that michael jordan series it's it's incredible you know but like it's a perfect example of how he would sometimes uh um you know almost like hate somebody because it would bring the best out of them and i i feel that there was i feel it was a lot of that and and i think uh, obviously serena and, and respected her and knew she was a, a great player and and, and she just it, it gave her that extra drive that Serena probably didn't have against a lot of other players. So it actually says a lot about Maria too, in a way. Yeah. Uh, a, a final one, Michael, what, what, I mean, given you spent that many years working with Maria, what I, I don't, I've worked in tennis for, for 25 years. I don't feel like I really got to know Maria Sharapova at all. What, what is, what is she like? Right. Well, you know, I think, um, I mean, I loved, I, 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 I love Maria. I mean, I loved, uh, working with her we got along really good for the for the most part i got to see her grow up uh um you know those years of 16 and even knowing her earlier than that till 24 25 um but you people don't realize too i mean she obviously you can't complain she in her shoes she had an amazing life she has she has amazing life she made you know a lot of money she had um uh, um, be able to uh, all her dreams coming true but at the same time you know, she was always under a microscope everywhere we she went people knew her i mean you would be there was periods of time where she was unbelievably recognizable um and, and for a young girl like you you get a little like standoffish when when you're like that you know i mean i i could tell you stories that take hours of guys and people doing creepy things and <laughs> always wanting a picture always wanting um, and she was recognized by people that weren't even tennis fans, you know, in, in airports and stuff. And I think it, it, it put, it makes you a little bit like standoffish, you know, when everybody always coming at you wants something, you know, especially from a young age, it, you, you, she kind of put on this, uh, outside kind of like ice, ice queen, uh, feel. And then obviously she, uh, I know a lot of players and stuff always felt like she wasn't the, super friendly. She wasn't real social, but also she never did that well when she was really like close or friendly with somebody. And that has nothing to do with, uh, I think, like, I remember she was really good friends with Karolanko, you know, remember this Maria Karolanko. And I remember when she was 18, 19, we used to sometimes practice with Karolanko because they are friends. And I actually remember telling stop, like kind of stopping the practices because Maria would go when Karolanko would come to the net. This is just in a practice before the tournament. When another girl would come to net, Maria would like rip balls at her, you know, be like typical Maria. But when Karolinko came to net, Maria would start dinking the ball over, like pushing it over. <laughs> like it was the craziest thing. Like she, because they're so friendly and close, like it was hard for Maria to like separate her normal self 
from being like a friend. It was strange. And, and I remember, so I think she kind of knew that. And I felt like that was part of the reason maybe she was kind of stuck to herself because she felt like, you know, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win matches. And so I think she had a little bit of that attitude, which a lot of people don't like. Um, and so, but I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, I mean, she always had a great sense of humor. We always had a lot of fun. She was unbelievably supportive to me in tough times in my life. My wife, uh, my wife, my mother had cancer for three or four years. We were together and then she passed away. Maria was right there uh, by my side through the whole thing. And, uh, um, you know, it's just a lot of times the kind of she just didn't totally open up, I think, in a lot of ways, like people hope she would. But um, I think that comes a lot from the fame that she got at such a young age. You know, I remember actually real quick, quick story, when she was real young, I remember a few times like she would do press and stuff. And she was so young that Max and her agency would like have kind of like some answers prepared for her and stuff. And I remember there was times where I used to say to Max, like, why don't you let the girl just talk, you know, do it like she's so smart and she she's articulate, like it's better just to let her, you know, uh, talk because it's better than these like answers. And as she got a little bit older, she did that, you know, but I think, I think it was again, because she was so young, she was so successful. She became so famous that you, you do tend to get a little standoffish and stuff. I think. That's so interesting, Michael. Thank, thank yeah. you so much for for just letting us know because this we we don't know this stuff, and I think it's yeah. I actually think it's one of the sad things in a way that that uh, I do and too, I, and I do understand cases, it, yeah. but it is a shame because it is. Andy it is. Roddick has told me that she's actually a lot different to what you think. A lot different. She's funny. She's funny. She used to play practical jokes on me. I can tell you, you know, I can tell you um, so many different, uh, you know, jokes. Uh, I, I can tell you so many different stories. I remember when she was uh, with her shoulder, like when she was uh, rehabbing her shoulder, we used to be in Arizona and we'd get kind of bored because she was just doing uh, rehab all day. And uh, she used to play jokes on me, practical jokes and tease me and like this what? and that. And, you know, and, yeah, like we were out in the desert there, you know, and so like she'd put like a fake snake under my door she had a kind of a group of friends and a, and a small group that she was uh, totally not how she perceived at the tournaments and different stuff during when we were all together. And I think that's also why we had a good relationship for a lot of time, because I kind of bring some of that like normalcy to um, to her life, you know, and, and, and I think she had a, uh, you know, she knew she could count on me for for anything, you know, and vice versa. And so that's part of that whole seven years we were together. That's um I probably felt close closer to her than anybody I've really been with. When you spend that much time with somebody, you really see like the real person, you know. Mm. Did you stay in touch at all? Yeah, yeah, we do. I don't talk to her as much um, as I used to, but um, I actually uh, I probably talk to her every couple months. I, re- I remember I didn't know she was retiring. I mean, I could kind of see that it, it was probably coming soon. But I didn't know exactly when she was going to do it. So I was actually in Doha with um, Tamea and, and, and Kiki there. And I remember we all found out and I wrote her like a, a message and she wrote me like the nicest message back and thanked me for being a huge part of her journey. And and, um, you know, I think she I think she knows the, uh, the the people that really were around her and 
that she trusted and helped her uh, to achieve um, a, a great career. David Law there with the exclusive on Maria Sharapova, the practical joker. Trying to pick up some tips there, were you, David? It's quite a good one, that, isn't it? I mean, I'm wondering whether you might fall for that. I'd tell you what, that would not go down well. <laughs> I'm, I'm, folks, I'm getting the eyes here. I'm not going to try that. Um, it's so clear, isn't it, that she she's a completely different person to the people that know her and to her inner circle, which is which is why... It, it's so important important for us to have, to have got that perspective and and the context as to to why she she isn't the same person outwardly to to the public and to people that don't know her and as much as it's frustrating and a shame as you reference there david it is understandable um and and i i respect it in many ways i respect an awful lot of things about her you know we've we've touched on the the disappointing aspects of some of the things she's said and some of her attitudes, but there is an awful lot to to respect and admire as well. Yeah, and that's why, well, I, I, w- I was pleasantly surprised. I thought Michael Joyce would be a good person to speak to. I didn't think he would be quite that candid, and, and I really, really appreciate the fact that he, he just gave it to us straight. He let us know what, what it was like working with her. Um, I, I had heard uh, an interview on John Wertheim's podcast with Max Eisenberg, her longtime agent from from many many years, detailing many of his experiences with her, and I I thought he came across pretty well in that interview, and I actually asked him for an interview for this show, and uh, and he he said I will pass, uh, which um, I thought was a bit of a shame really, because and I think it is kind of symptomatic of one of the issues of not really knowing who Maria Sharapova is, is that she and her her circle were pretty closed off. And there's another example. We weren't going to get to, to hear about what she's really like. Well, fortunately, Michael has done that for us. But I, but I think I, I, I kind of look at it in two ways. One, I think it's a shame. But two, I do understand it. As you say, there is a, a point of fame where – it can just get completely out of hand that a you can't control sheer logistics of keeping up with everybody on your own so you you have to make a very strict decision on who you're going to surround yourself with that you are going to give your number out to and those that you say no you've got to go through my agent and and yeah people can can get a bit annoyed about it but it's not easy it's not easy for these players sometimes to manage the sheer amount on their plates no, well, I'm very pleased we were able to to bookend the Maria Sharapova story in that way with Michael Joyce. Really, really interesting insights. And that is the end of the Maria Sharapova story, isn't it? Because she is now retired um, as a five-time Grand Slam champion, as only a one-time Wimbledon champion. I wonder how many people would have believed back in 2004 that she'd never win that title again and she'd only reach one more final. But Plenty to be proud of in her career. Matt, where are we headed tomorrow? Well, I think our next two shows are the best two Wimbledon finals that I remember. And tomorrow is the 2005 final, Venus Williams versus Lindsay Davenport. It's a corker, isn't it? And we, mm. we've got Lindsay Davenport talking about it. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating and yes folks the day after that is when we'll be heading to the men's final in 2008 for anyone that's been screaming at their devices for two weeks about 
why we're not talking about Federer and Nadal. We will. We will. Um, can we watch yeah. both of them now? You can do whatever you like, David, as evidenced <laughs> by the fact that Dave, David confessed before recording this that he actually rewatched the last two games of Ivanisevic Rafter again this morning and cried again. How how long are you going to keep the streak going? How many days in a row are you going to watch the final two games of that match, David? I don't know. It just, I mean, apparently, I think they're playing it again later this week on <laughs> telly. So, um, I, you know, what can I do? I mean, it's just too good not to watch. It's your new addiction. Right, well, you can go off and watch whatever you like now, David. Uh, Matt can go and deal with his internet issues. He's gone all. He's gone a bit law today, and I'll go and I'm puppy sitting this afternoon, so I win. Which one? Luna, lovely oh, Luna. Oh. Yeah, Labradoodle. Mm. It's splendid. It's, it's love. Um, thank you to Gerald. Sorry, Gerald, for talking about a dog. Um, but you know, there's room for dogs and cats in the world in a lovely, happy, harmonious way. Uh, Gerald, thanks for being excellent. There is some excellent Gerald content on our Instagram and I think Twitter channels. If you want to indulge in that, it's spectacular. I, I stole the pictures of Gerald from his own Instagram account <laughs> to put on our Twitter last night. Yes. <laughs> his fame is getting out of hand, folks. Um, and thanks to you for listening. We've got five, four more of these. Crikey. Matt's eyes lit up in horror when I said five. It's only four more and they're going to be great. Uh, so join us again for one more tomorrow. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.